The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops or reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off his mother-freaking plane, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show, because with me is the Quatsit to my Sherlock, because with me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor, and of course with me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Can with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters when wearing a Santa suit. Can with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Can with me is a guy who plays a really mean Max guitar. My co-host and jukebox hero. Can with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Can with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Can with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Darth Vader. Can with me is a guy who has a Fear of Horta Party, thanks to the Equals. Get with me, because a guy who just wants to believe. My co host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we conclude the fall 2016 TV season with our review of the mid season finales of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, and Supernatural with Michael and Tim's review of that episode. But before all of that, we kick everything off this week with the News with Nico section. Sherlock releases final season 4 trailer. I've been slightly concerned ever since the first trailer of the upcoming season of Sherlock came out back in July. Not concerned for whether or not it's going to be good, because, come on, it's Sherlock. They're all amazing. But rather, concerned for the characters we've gotten to know and love along the way. The Comic-Con footage seemed to be setting up some rather dark things ahead with consequences more dire than ever before. The footage in the new trailer seems to amplify those concerns even more. What's immediately clear is that almost everyone Sherlock holds dear, whether he admits it or not, will find themselves at some point in fearful situations. Watson, Holmes, and others appear to be held captive in what looks like an underground facility and perhaps have to figure their way out of it. Watson, Mycroft, and Sherlock all seem relatively calm when he says I love you to the camera, so that could be the answer to a question that allows them to move on to another riddle or get released. What's noticeably absent from this footage is any glimpse of Andrew Scott's Moriarty, which strikes me as sort of odd considering how prominent he was in the Comic-Con teaser. Is Moriarty's work finished? Will Toby Jones play a part in continuing that said work? It's all still very unclear. What is known, however, is that Jones will be playing Culverton Smith, a character from the Holmes tale The Adventure of the Dying Detective. Saving any spoilers, that story would make for a decent BBC Sherlock tale, but I'd want so much more from an actor like Toby Jones. With how unkempt Sherlock appears in some of these shots, it does make me wonder if at least some elements of The Adventure of the Dying Detective are in there. But I'm really hoping Jones gets intertwined with the Moriarty story arc in a big way as well. Doctor Who Christmas special trailer. It's the most wonderful time of year. And no, I'm not talking about the holidays. I'm talking about the Doctor Who Christmas special. The BBC released the first trailer for the special titled The Return of Doctor Mysterio, in which the Doctor returns to New York City, teaming up with his old friend Nardal, an investigative reporter, and a superhero named The Ghost. The Doctor will be tasked with saving Manhattan from brain-swapping aliens. The Return of Doctor Mysterio was written by departing showrunner Stephen Moffat, and producer Chris Chibnall from Broadchurch will replace Moffat after the upcoming season 10, which is expected to air in the spring of 2017. The Doctor Who Christmas special will air on Christmas Day at 9-8 Central on BBC America. It will also enjoy a limited run in theaters from December 27th through 29th as a fandom event. So make sure you go and see that if you don't catch it on Christmas. Star Wars Rebels Ghost spotted in Rogue One trailer. With the exclusion of the especially expansive expanded universe and instead focusing on key existing elements and brand new stories, the Star Wars continuity has gotten much more narrow than it once was. But it also means that there's a greater cohesion and more chance of things to cross over. One of the best examples of this has been the series Star Wars Rebels, which definitely bridges the gap between Episode 3 and 4, bringing in Leia, Lando, Darth Maul, and others. Now, a keen 
seemingly spotted Easter egg from the latest Rogue One trailer suggests Rebels might be crossing over into the film world as well. For a brief moment in the final trailer, you can see a squadron of Rebel Alliance craft headed towards a conflict with Imperial forces. Among the ships are familiar standouts like X-Wings, Corellian cruisers, and even what appears to be Leia's Rebel blockade runner from the opening salvo of A New Hope. But in the bottom of the frame, just below the Leia-looking ship, is a very distinctive vessel with a specific shape and a triangular engine array that sure as hell looks to me like the Ghost, the cruiser piloted by Captain Hera and her plucky band of scoundrels from the beloved animated series. I mean, if it's not the Ghost, it's a pretty cruel trick to play on fans. The timeline of Rebels, which is in its third season, as of this week's mid-season finale, puts the Rebellion clearly in the early stages, and the B-Wing has only fairly recently been produced. Wedge Antilles has been introduced as a teenager, and Leia seemed pretty young when she was on the show in Season 2. So this all leads me to believe there won't be a direct tie-in to Rogue One or A New Hope anytime soon on the show. And while I can't imagine the Ghost will feature much in Rogue One beyond maybe this one fight scene, or maybe just this one shot, it's a great nod to the show, which is a major part of the universe's unfolding continuity, and is very heartening to know that at least some of our beloved Rebels characters will still be fighting the good fight against the Empire in the most major part of Star Wars history. Supernatural boss says Negan has not killed a John Winchester comeback. Supernatural executive producer Andrew Dabb tells TV Line that Jeffrey Dean Morgan's relatively new status as one of TV's biggest evildoers ever does not preclude his potential return as Sam and Dean's dad, John Winchester. He joked that by the time they needed Jeffrey Dean Morgan to return to Supernatural, it will be in its 20th season and Walking Dead will have been long done. Anyway, if it ever does come to pass, it would be interesting to see John Winchester make a return to the series. We've not seen him since the season 2 premiere when he sacrificed himself to save Dean. I think it'd be interesting to see. New epic Dark Tower photo released. Nothing to see here, folks. Just two cool dudes gathering so much tension with their eyes that you might wish that this was a romantic comedy rather than a science fantasy horror western epic. Seriously, it's been a while since we've seen a new photo from the upcoming screen version of Stephen King's best-selling book series, The Dark Tower. But our patience has been rewarded with a shot of stars Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey having a stare down over whatever the hell Roland the Gunslinger and the Man in Black are staring down over. Check it out out in your chapter art now or the link in the ACC feed. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, so we're going to jump right into it right now with the Walking Dead mid-season finale entitled Hearts Still Beating. With members out scavenging for supplies, Negan's unwelcome visit to Alexandria continues. With tensions high, things quickly spin out of control. This has been a rough first half of Season 7. After the build-up to Negan's debut last season and the deaths we knew would come with it, we were presented with those deaths in Season 7's extremely polarizing premiere. Ever since then, with the exception of the King Ezekiel introduction, we've been subjected to a non-stop barrage of misery, so much so that we've essentially been denied the opportunity to grieve for those deaths in the premiere. It's one thing for the show to abuse its characters, it's another to abuse the viewers, which is exactly what many fans have complained about all season. But watching Rick and his friends subjected to a never-ending torrent of physical and mental torture has been brutal for all of us involved. In true Walking Dead fashion, however, just when many of us are ready to write the show off entirely, a ray of hope finally shines at the end of this week's mid-season finale. Its brightness might simply be due to the sheer contrast against the darkness that has preceded it, but it's a brightness that can't be denied. But before that, this episode began with Negan playing adopted father to Carl, playing house in Rick's house in Alexandria, essentially tormenting Carl and Olivia while attempting to present himself as an alternative father to Carl. Just in case last week it wasn't made clear enough in that episode, the point is rammed home with scenes of Negan teaching the boy to shave. I'll say this again, this doesn't work in the context of this series. Sure, in the comics, Carl is a much more impressionable child of 12 when he meets Negan and could be more susceptible to his influence. But Carl is damn near 18 or 19 now in the TV series and much less likely to be influenced by Negan's quote-unquote charms and views on life. 
Meanwhile, Rick and Aaron are able to reach that houseboat cache they found last week. Daryl breaks free of the sanctuary with the help of Jesus, though not before taking out all of the torment he stored up on the least threatening of the saviors. And Michonne has an epiphany and turns back from her suicide mission to kill Negan, and rather remembered the Alexandria's greatest weapon, community. I'll dive into each of those, but let's start with Rick and Aaron first. Their adventure just getting to the houseboat was harrowing, and even mildly unbelievable that Aaron was not bit in the water, but he got beaten pretty badly later in the episode, so apparently all his luck was used up in that one moment. The cache was full of food and guns, but apparently no ammo, as Rick mentions that the only thing he ran out of was ammunition. I was hoping, and even mentioned it last week, that this discovery could go one of three ways. Unfortunately, it appears they did the stupid thing I said not to, and brought the whole load back to Alexandria for a one-time delivery to Negan and his saviors. There was enough that this could probably have gotten them a few deliveries worth of goodwill, but rather it only counts as a single one and with the whole Rosita thing it's not even good enough for that. I was hoping the ammo would be enough to convince Rick that they had the firepower to fight back. Luckily it was Michonne and the events that happened in this episode at Alexandria that did that instead. Switching gears, last week we saw Daryl given a note with a key on it. I assumed it was from Sherry, Dwight's wife, who we saw try to stop him from escaping before when she knew it was a trap. I thought now that she knew Negan was gone, maybe she was saying it was safe to leave. But in reality, it makes more sense that it was Ninja Jesus that gave him the note and was waiting for him to make his move to help him escape. Jesus knew how valuable Daryl was to the Alexandrians and essentially to the hilltop as well, so it makes sense that he'd figure a way to help him escape this week while Negan was away. However, while leaving the sanctuary, Daryl was spotted by Fat Joey, who was quick to say, whatever man, just go. But Daryl didn't just go. Rather, just as Jesus happened upon them, Daryl murdered the plus-sized savior, taking out all his rage and anger and grief on the single guy by smashing him repeatedly with a lead pipe. This cathartic release was what Daryl needed after his torture at the hands of the saviors, and probably what we all needed after the season so far. Also, not sure if you caught it, but Fat Joey pleaded with Daryl not to hurt him because he was just trying to get by as a savior. But Daryl said, it ain't just about getting by here, it's about getting it all. Essentially, Daryl was indicting the entire savior community for the atrocities they commit in Negan's name, because they all partake in the spoils. Also, Fat Joey just happened to be carrying Rick's famous gun. How convenient. Also last week, we saw Michonne kidnap a female savior with her walker roadblock trap. This savior took Michonne and showed her one of the savior camps, and the massive compound enlightened Michonne that a head-on assault was futile. However, the most surprising aspect of the episode came when Michonne realized just how massive the savior's strength really was, and the female savior told her she still had options, and that there was a silencer in the glove compartment. Essentially, she was saying that Michonne had to kill her, make her car disappear, and go home, all of which Michonne did. We see this from a distance with the classic TV sound of a silencer and a suppressed muzzle flash and then the car slowly turns around and drives off. I know that Michonne is capable of killing when it is needed or she is threatened but this death definitely felt different. More personal, more unnecessary, yet fully necessary so the saviors never found out. It's just something to think about. As for Spencer's fate, I knew he had signed his death warrant as soon as he decided to make friends with the saviors and attempt to cozy directly up to Negan, but it was still entertaining as hell to watch the show's least likable characters smugly sipping drinks and shooting pool with Negan, confident that he stood even the slightest chance of usurping Rick's position at Alexandria. Negan's response that Rick's actually working for him while Spencer's simply trying to kiss his ass illustrates the modicum of respect this season's big bad holds for the former lawman. So it was sort of a gruesomely satisfying kill when Negan shows the pretty boy what guts really look like. Though it might disappoint those who watch The Walking Dead only to satisfy their bloodlust that the second Alexandrian to die in this episode, Olivia, is the only other recurring character feature that all but ensures less Alexandrian bloodshed in the second half. Yet part of me is disappointed that this episode ultimately concerned itself with Rick's feelings at the end of the episode rather than Rosita's, since so much of this episode focused on her revenge plan, from her meeting with Father Gabriel to her final flirtation with Spencer to her firing a bullet right into the heart of Lucille. The last action gives us what is by far probably the best commercial fade out of the season. We know that actor Jeffrey Dean Morgan isn't going anywhere anytime soon, so we knew Negan wouldn't die, yet we also know Rosita's a superb shot, so you gotta give points to whoever came up with the idea of letting Lucille stand between Rosita and her man, even if the science makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, had she fired an arrow? 
arrow, then sure, Negan could be holding his baseball bat and the bat would stop the arrow. But a bullet, when she fired from close range, not like. Anyway, I'll let it slide for good dramatic effect. But unlike Rick and Maggie, Michonne, Carl, and Rosita were not thinking things through, and their plans did not consider the cost of taking a shot at the king. What is the old Ralph Waldo Emerson saying? When you strike at a king, you must kill him? When Rosita misses, or rather only hits Lucille, she causes Olivia's death and Eugene's imprisonment, much like Daryl's actions resulted in the death of Glenn. Rosita, and for that matter Carl and Michonne, though Michonne was shocked out of hers before it got too far, were so blinded by their hate and their need for revenge or vengeance, they did not consider the consequences to anyone but themselves with their plans. Their actions ha have had horrible consequences for other people, and in brilliant psychopathic and sociopathic ways, Negan has punished others for the actions of a few to keep everyone in line. You could argue that all of the deaths this week are a direct result of Carl's plan from last week. Had he not tried to kill Negan, he never would have been in Alexandria this week. That is why Rick and Maggie's plan has to be perfect, has to be well thought out, and has to ensure Negan's death, or at the very least, ensure that any retaliation will cost the Savior so much that it isn't worth it. As the episode concluded, Rick, Michonne, Tara, Rosita, and Carl show up at the hilltop to tell Maggie that they were ready to fight. And who was there but Daryl, back with Jesus. In the end, it's damn near impossible for longtime fans not to choke up a little bit at the sight of Rick, Michonne, Daryl, and Maggie reunited at the hilltop, with a battered but not broken Daryl fighting back tears as he hugs Rick and Michonne before handing Rick his pistol and walking off to formulate a plan. So, we ended the midseason on kind of a positive note. Oops, no, that that wasn't the ending. After that, we saw whoever that was who spied Rick and Aaron at the houseboat, keeping an eye on Alexandria and ultimately sneaking into the community after dark. I mean, seriously, the writers couldn't give us two minutes of feeling good before we're back to worrying about the horrible stuff they're going to do to the characters and us, the viewers, in the second half. However, the fact that the preview for the show's return in February reveals part of Rick and Maggie's plan involves a visit to the kingdom is cause enough, even among those who had all but written the show off this season to tune in once more. Anyway, that is my review for this week's Walking Dead. Walking Dead returns Sunday, February 12th. Now we're going to move on to the mid-season finale of Star Wars Rebels entitled Visions and Voices. Ezra is haunted by visions of Maul and journeys across the galaxy to engage in a strange ritual to sever his connection to Maul. It has been a few episodes since this series focused on Darth Maul, and I've been anxiously awaiting his return. This week's episode did not disappoint. The former Darth comes back into the picture because he's found Adalon and wants to merge his mind with Ezra so they can each get the complete information they sought from the Sith holocron. So how does this evil former Darth attempt to make this happen? Does he contact Ezra and broker a truce first? or simply knock on the door of the rebel base? No, he gets into Ezra's head with visions and voices. Ezra starts sensing Maul's presence before he saw him. The kid was more or less having hallucination-like visions of him everywhere he looked. He became so convinced one of his fellow rebels was Maul that he was this close to killing him before Kanan intervened. It was unnerving, but not entirely unexpected to see Ezra lose control to such a degree. He's been off ever since he was first embroiled with Maul. And the anger and fear on his face when he nearly killed the fellow rebel was borderline dark side. When Ezra finally told Kanan what was happening, Kanan listened and they went to Bendu for advice. I really enjoyed the introduction of the Bendu character to this series. He acts as almost an impartial teacher that helps Kanan to see things more clearly. Thus it makes sense that they would seek him out and have Ezra tell the wise being what happened when he and Maul looked into the holocron. And Bendu gave his frank opinion. That's not good. Ezra and Kanan didn't have time to discuss it further because Maul showed up and proposed to Ezra, whom he keeps calling his apprentice, the idea of melding their minds to share what they saw when they opened the holocron together. Maul was hoping to find out where the person he's looking for is, and Ezra could learn the answers to what will help them defeat the Sith. Also, before we go any further, it is worth noting that I want to point out the difference in their questions. They both have the opportunity to more or less discover anything they want to know. Maul makes a personal selfish request while Ezra goes a more selfless route. It's classic dark side and light side and gives me hope for Ezra maybe not crossing over to the dark side. They keep hinting at it, but this at least gives me hope that it's not going to happen. Now, of course, Maul's offer is stupid to even consider, but how else are they going to progress the story? Anyway, Ezra goes along with Maul's plan because he's curious and also because Maul threatens to reveal the location of Chopper Base. I do have to say that Kanan deserves major credit here because 
because he let Ezra make up his own mind and also reassured him having to find a new base for the rebels wasn't the end of the world. He was an ideal mentor in this situation and I've really enjoyed watching Kanan get to this point as a master. The return to Dathomir this week with Maul was a fun twist. This was an exciting development for those of us who are fans and loved the Clone Wars series. Maul explained that he was the last survivor of the planet because the Empire viewed the Night Sisters as a threat and wiped them all out. Their use of the Force combined with magic made them interesting but apparently too powerful. Dan and I had a number of discussions over the years about the Night Sisters and where exactly they fit in the Force. They were not true Sith and definitely were not Jedi. Essentially, they were in the gray area between the two extremes, a little more towards the dark side. Maul's lair was filled with artifacts from his past to help him find the answer he was looking for. Clone Wars fans will recognize the portrait of the Mandalorian Satine, and if you haven't watched the Clone Wars, I won't spoil what Maul and her relationship was, and Pre Vizsla's Darksaber was there as well. The Mandalorian story arc from the Clone Wars series was one of my favorites, and seeing it continued, or at least alluded to here, was great. Maul used the Night Sisters' magic to combine Ezra and his thoughts in hopes of seeing what they both were seeking, and it worked, and confirmed that Maul was indeed looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi, saying, it will end where it began. Tatooine is where he first met the Jedi, and Maul's never let go of his vengeful feelings towards Obi-Wan. Not entirely surprising considering who Obi-Wan is protecting, he was also the answer to Ezra's question as well. However, Ezra doesn't have the history or knowledge to know that the desert planet with the twin suns is Tatooine, so it is now a race to beat Maul to the Jedi. I'm super excited about the possibility of seeing Obi-Wan in the Star Wars Rebels again, and given Ewan McGregor's enthusiasm to re return to Star Wars and how he returned to voice the character in The Force Awakens during Rey's Force Vision at Maz's castle, I wouldn't rule him out doing the voice. But yes, I would also miss James Arnold Taylor, who voiced Obi-Wan in the Clone Wars series and at the beginning of Star Wars Rebels, if that were the case. Either way, I'm ecstatic that it appears Obi-Wan is coming to Rebels and gives me hope for those standalone Obi-Wan films we've been talking about. Anyway, back to this episode. Before leaving Dathomir armed with this newfound information, Ezra and Maul were attacked by the spirits of the Night Sisters. Sabine and Kanan arrived because they had installed a tracker and followed Ezra, and they were almost instantly possessed by these Night Sister spirits. As Maul and Ezra ran away from the spirits, Maul pleaded with Ezra to join him in going after Obi-Wan. Maul's voice had a hint of desperation and emotion. It was unexpected and intrigued me. He told Ezra they could be brothers. Does that imply that Maul misses his brother Savage, or is he fearful that he's not powerful enough to take Obi-Wan himself and needs Ezra? Ezra, of course, declined and luckily was able to figure out how to free Kanan and Sabine from the spirits by destroying the altar that gave them their power. It felt symbolic, like a final destruction of the old magic of Dathomir. As they left, Kanan said that this adventure was the last time they were going to trust Maul, and Sabine found and scooped up the Darksaber, which more than makes up for her jetpack loss from a few weeks ago. This was a great mid-season finale, and just an overall great episode in this series. Seriously, Maul and Thrawn have been the best parts of the third season. I'm most excited now about the potential return of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Can't wait for this return sometime in January or February. Alright, finally we're going to wrap up this week's review with Michael and Tim's supernatural review and discussion on the episode entitled Lotus. Hey everyone, Michael J. Petty here. Welcome back to the Supernatural segment of the Across Areas podcast where we're talking about the season 12 mid-season finale entitled Lotus. With me today is my friend and fellow Satan killer, Tim Cook. Tim, what's happened? Oh, not much. You know, just ready for this mid-season finale. We have a lot to talk about in this one. It was definitely worthy of the title mid-season. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, guys, on this week's Supernatural, a lot of crap went down. Like, a lot. Let's start off with Lucifer this week. It's been a crazy ride this past season with the devil running amok, killing groupies and possessing rock stars. But this week he goes full exorcist and possesses an archbishop at the beginning of the episode, even having crosses turned upside down as he passes by, which was the, one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. And then, of course, turning the POTUS into the Lotus and possessing the President of the United States, which was interesting in and of itself. As much as Supernatural likes to use and then mock Christianity in some respects, as we even saw in this episode a few times, I really appreciated how we got 
got to see the devil's weakness in being burned by touching a Bible this week. That was kind of interesting. And, you know, it's never happened on Supernatural before. And I thought giving power against Satan back to the Word of God was a really nice touch. As it turns out, Lucifer really just wants more power, as we already knew. And he just wants to be someone in authority, someone who can make his own decisions and create, just like his father. Tim, did you laugh and cry as hard as I did when it was revealed that Lucifer was the, had decided to possess the president? I mean, how many times have we heard that Obama was the devil or the Antichrist or something like that? This week has brought some of those thoughts and opinions to reality in a very interesting way. And how creepy was Satan as that archbishop? Oh, I mean, he really went to town on the priests and the nuns that work there. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about the beginning of that episode. And I mean, I, I think we've finally seen, uh, you know, season four and five Lucifer being really, really creepy again, especially, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but holy crap, when he starts turning those crosses upside down just by walking by, I mean, that's freaky. And you look at the the aftermath of, of what he did there, kind of some freaky stuff for sure. Definitely a, a different side to Lucifer that we haven't seen in a while. And I definitely like what you brought up about him touching the Bible and being burnt by it. One of the things I was really hoping for is he did take over the president this time. And what I was hoping for was because we've heard so many times, you know, Obama's the Antichrist, Obama's the devil, Obama's this, Obama's that. What I was really hoping for is that the actor who was going to play Satan was going to kind of be a ripoff of Obama in kind of a it's a little bit of Obama, but not quite in the same way, you know, like, you know, just some guy who talks similar to Obama, who has kind of a lot of the same similar quirks and characteristics. I think that would have been really funny. And it, it definitely was in, it was definitely an interesting twist for the show. I mean, we have seen 12 seasons of this show never really get political. I mean, I think the most we've ever seen Sam and Dean really encounter anything like this has been when they're being chased down by the police. And I think season three, when, when a couple of shapeshifters get them in trouble with the law, but we've never really seen Sam and Dean go face to face with the law, and we really haven't seen them get messed up with anything like Secret Service, or like politics, or the presidency, so this is a really interesting twist for the show to take, and, and definitely an interesting thing to see the devil take over the president, and I mean, it was definitely a very interesting twist, and I know there's a scene in the middle of the episode when they're sitting in the bunker, it's kind of towards the beginning, but when they're sitting in the bunker and Crowley shows up and, and points out to them that Lucifer is actually the president right now, they all have these great looks on their faces where they I mean, I mean, they're freaking out for a minute here because they realize the magnitude of the fact that Lucifer just became president of the United States. And so we definitely see them on a very different scale than we have in a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on when you say that the Winchesters have never really encountered politics for that. I mean, they've encountered people in power. Dick Roman is a prime example of that, and he's probably the closest they ever got to encountering a political figure in high office who could actually do something to them. But mm -hmm. I thought it was very interesting that the stakes were raised so high this week in that Lucifer was actually the president and even jokes about nuking other countries. I know. <laughs> totally nonchalantly just jokes about, oh, let's just nuke them, which I think is the funniest thing ever, but nobody else in that room did. <laughs> well, and can we also take just a moment to point out, like, here, he, one of the things I was really paying attention to this week is we knew we were getting a new actor this week for Satan. And one of the things I wanted to see was how well was Lucifer's character going to transfer from one body to the next. We've seen a pretty consistent character from the transition from season four to how he was portrayed last season to how he was portrayed as, as Castiel. And so we've seen these fairly consistent portrayals of Lucifer. And I'd like to point out that he had two different bodies in one episode, so two different actors playing him in this episode alone. And both of them, in my opinion, were pretty spot on. We see a character that Supernatural has built well enough that he has continued to body hop, and we're still able to see some of the same signature characteristics. And I'm very impressed with how Supernatural has handled Lucifer, especially considering we've had this big shift from all these different actors 
actors um, and being able to kind of keep the core personality traits of the Lucifer they're looking to portray. Yeah, absolutely. That's been one of my favorite aspects of Lucifer throughout the entire series of Supernatural is, you know, Mark Pellegrino really started his role on the series and really kickstarted it in a way that hardly any other character on the show, I think, has. And a lot of the actors have been able to emulate what Pellegrino did with the role, whether it was Jared Padalecki, Misha Collins, Rick Springfield, and then so so many others over the past few years. I think that's an incredible feat, and that's something that the writers should be proud of, and that's something that the directors of the show should be proud of. Mm -hmm. That being said, let's move on to the second biggest plot point we have to mention this week was the creation of Rosemary, I mean Satan's baby. Justice 6 talks about fallen angels coming to Earth and fathering children, giants called the Nephilim. We've seen Jesse here on the show, the future Antichrist, who is a product of a human and demon conception, and we've seen one Nephilim on Supernatural before, an angel-human hybrid, who was killed by Castiel under Metatron's guidance back at the end of Season 8. Now, we're entering a new phase in Supernatural history where a new Nephilim, this one born of an archangel and a woman, not just a regular angel, has arrived. And this one, most likely, much more powerful than the last. We've had theories as to how this season is going to go and how next season is going to start, but it looks like, with Satan seemingly sent back to hell, back to his cage, that his offspring is going to be the big bad this year, or at least going into next. My theory right now, Tim, is that Crowley may still turn on the Winchesters and Castiel, and probably will, but similarly to how he dealt with Amar at the beginning of last season, I could see him abducting and raising this unholy abomination as his own, possibly even allowing it to become greater than himself. Tim, what were your thoughts on Supernatural's return of the Nephilim, and what is this going to mean for the rest of the series? Well, I definitely like that they, I mean, it's definitely an interesting plot twist for them to do. It'll be very interesting to see where they go with it. We got a lot in this episode. There's a lot to unpack. There's Lucifer, there's this. We also got some some stuff from the Men of Letters and a couple of other stuff that we'll be talking a little bit uh, later on. But reintroducing Nephilim is, is a very interesting plot point. And we got in this episode that this is going to be a continuing plot point at least until the end of the season because we know that she runs away with the baby even though she realizes that it's an unholy abomination. She wants to keep it because it's her child. And I guess one of the things we're going to have to look at is how fast does, does you know her pregnancy go? Is it going to be a full nine months? Is it going to be a next season thing? Are they going to speed that up so it happens that, you know, are we going to see the, the birth of, of Satan's baby at the end of this season? It'll be very interesting to see how they play that one out. There's a lot that they did just in this episode with that that opens up a lot of doors. And we have seen Nephilim a little bit in the series, but not too much. And we know from this episode that the creation, the conception of a Nephilim is a really big thing, considering how much it caused a shockwave and all of the angels and Castiel were able to feel it and it kind of racked around Angel Radio what was going on. I mean, we see Castiel have this moment where where this suddenly happens and, and we realize that, that Satan's all of a sudden having a child, which is possibly the most terrifying thing ever. But it'll be interesting to see what this means for the rest of the series and especially, you're right, how Crowley's going to play into this. We did see Crowley try and raise Amara and how that kind of backfired on Crowley as he had to keep feeding her and keep feeding her and it was never really enough. So it'll be really interesting to see. We'll have to see if Crowley's going to make the same mistake twice or if Crowley learned from his mistakes the first time and isn't going to do that a second time. I think we can see a big motivation here for Crowley to go after the, the baby pretty heavily and maybe use some of Crowley's more demonic methods to, to, to stop Lucifer from having a child. <laughs> One of my favorite plot lines in the 10th season of Smallville was when the character Lionel Luther returned, but it was like an alternate version of the character, and he ended up taking back control of Luther Corp, his, his well, his Earth-1 version's company, and actually tried to mold and raise a cloned version of his son Lex to become his next heir. And I feel like with this plot line, it would be very easy for Crowley as the King of Hell to kind of mold and raise Lucifer's child as his, his, his protege, his progeny in some respects, in, in ways that he could never do with his own son Gavin, because mm -hmm. his, his son was a human. And I think that would be a very interesting concept. I think having, you know, 
Lucifer Jr. as the Prince of Hell to Crowley's King could be a very interesting concept and could, you know, ultimately backfire on Crowley, like you mentioned, but it could also prove to Crowley's advantage, especially if this kid was to buy into everything Crowley was saying and to hate the Winchesters as much as Crowley and his own father does. I think it's a very interesting concept. I'm really excited to see where it goes. I kind of hope that it'll go kind of like a Falling Sky Season 4 route where the human-alien hybrid baby accelerated its age, and I kind of hope that that's what we see here i don't i don't want necessarily a small nephilim child i think with the power of an archangel running through its veins it should accelerate the aging process pretty quick kind of like amara did last year yeah although let's say this i mean lilith we did see lilith portrayed as a little girl and we also saw amara for a short period of time portrayed as a little girl and both of them are creepy as all get up i mean those two and in little children bodies being the, the demonic people they were were terrifying so so maybe the route they take is another creepy little girl for Lucifer's daughter. Maybe that's what we're going to see. And they're, they're going to try and do that whole freak us out with a demonic little child. We could, I mean, we could easily see like an exorcist sort of thing or a Damien from the Omen sort of little little boy running around with black eyes or something, which would be terrifying. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be cool with that, but I would also kind of be cool with that. I don't know. That, that's <laughs> that's kind of scary. I don't know if I like that theory. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we move on? Absolutely. That being said, I really like the return slash introduction of Arthur Ketch this week. Mr. Ketch has been this mysterious character who seems to be cleaning up the Winchester's messes this season on assignment from the British Mineral Letters. And to be honest, although I didn't like what he did with Magda earlier this season, I really liked Ketch this week, and I hope he's a character who returns in the future. His weapons slash devices for hunting monsters, including the weapon that turns vampire blood into poison, were amazing. And the exorcism egg, as I'm calling it, that he gave to our leads this week to face Lucifer seemed to work like a charm. Plus, who doesn't love an introduction when someone arrives with a grenade launcher and shoots at the Secret Service? I mean, come on. That is awesome. And Dean thought so as well. Tim, what were your thoughts on Arthur Ketch this week, his weaponry, and his and what do you think his role in the series is going to be going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a little bit about, you know, Arthur Ketch and what we thought he was going to be, and I think we may have been a little bit wrong. I mean, we definitely talked at the beginning of the season how we thought that the end of the season might be this big hunter versus men of letters thing and that even after especially after that hunter episode the hunter funeral episode we were definitely on board with the fact that they're going to get some hunters together they're probably going to have this kind of showdown with the men of letters but i'm not so sure about that anymore i mean we've met three main people with the men of letters and one is tony one is that uh that other guy who kind of shows up and and now catch and so far two of them have been really willing to work with the Winchester brothers. However, I do think it's important to keep in mind, especially when talking about Arthur Ketch, is that multiple times in the series so far, he has been described as a lunatic. Like, he's he's crazy, he's insane. Mm. I mean, Tony didn't want to call him in because she was worried that he was going to go haywire and that he was a lunatic and she didn't want to work with him. So, I think we've seen the nice, the nice side of Arthur Cat. I think, this week, but I definitely don't expect that fully going into the future. I think he's here to get what he needs and to get what the Men of Letters wants, and if Sam and Dean aren't going to comply, he is going to be their biggest nightmare, not their ally. So I definitely think... It, it, he was definitely very interesting this season. I would definitely love to see the Winchester brothers incorporate some of this new technology that he brings to the forefront. And we did see that with the exorcism egg. And I would love to see some of the other technology they have used, like, you're right, the, the weapon that, that turns vampires' blood against them. That would be really interesting to see used in a, in a later episode. But yeah, I think there's definitely a flip side to Arthur Ketch, and we need to be, we need to be cautious in watching him because He's definitely been described as crazy before, so it's an important point that maybe he's only giving the Winchesters what they want right now. No, that's definitely a good point, Tim, and I had actually forgotten that he was described that way by Tony earlier on this in this series, and that's definitely something we have to keep in mind, because he could, you're right, he could snap at any moment, or if the Winchesters do something that he does not like, he could turn on them immediately. I mean, we saw earlier this season how brutal he was killing Magda, even though, you know, she was essentially an innocent girl 
who who really didn't do anything wrong or didn't at least intend to do anything wrong and took her out like it was nothing. And if he were to ever turn on the Winchesters or on Castiel or on anybody, I think they'd be in a lot of danger. I think you bring up a great point. Mm -hmm. Well, and we, we do get a little bit of his personality in this episode. And from what we can tell, he already knew about Castiel being an angel and he seems to know a lot. I mean, he knew yeah. Castiel could erase the minds of those three secret service agents and he happened, I mean, he knew what kind of weaponry to use and all this different stuff. So he definitely seems like a very intelligent character yeah. um, who definitely understands a lot about, you know, angels and demons. And I don't know what the Winchester brothers told him this week because we have this moment where he's like, are you going to trust me? And the brothers are basically like, well, we actually need something from you first. And then the next thing we see is they're setting up this trap with the exorcism egg. So we don't necessarily know the end of that conversation or maybe what that exorcism egg is going to cost them later on. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, Arthur Ketch might be the kind of person who teams up with Castiel to help bust the brothers out going on later from, from the fact that they just got scooped up by the secret service so yeah speaking of and hopefully they won't catch too many favors but leading into this week's cliffhanger i want to briefly mention the character of the secret serviceman rick sanchez this week now sanchez is played by stephen lobo who after a brief stint on smallville actually starred in one of my all-time favorite sci-fi shows continuum as matthew kellogg the time-traveling entrepreneur and big bad for the show's final season but after what happens at the end of this week's episode something we'll get to in just a minute tim do you think it's a possibility that sanchez could become the new fbi agent hendrix type character from the earlier seasons the series who chased the brothers until he found out that they were hunters and actually doing good before he was killed by Lilith. Do you, do you feel like this character could potentially become an ally in the future after hunting them for quite some time? Well, you know, I definitely think that where we are in the show, we can always use some cool new characters. And they definitely made a point to kind of highlight a him a little bit in this episode. I mean, he had three scenes. The first one where he's talking to the president. The second one where he nearly gets blown up by a rocket launcher. And the third one when they're arresting the Winchester brothers. So we definitely see him a good amount in this episode. And there's definitely an opportunity for them to incorporate him as someone who is chasing them down. And I imagine especially after the after the president or I more accurately Lucifer at the time told him specifically I want you to handle this in-house I want you to handle this with the Secret Service he probably feels like he failed the president a little bit and so I'm sure there's a level of really wanting to get the Winchester brothers so if and when the Winchester brothers you know break out we could definitely see him turn into you know an agent Hendrix type of character who is hunting them down and it would definitely add some chase to the TV show I mean the brothers kind of just just hop around and, and do what they need to get done and show up where they need to. But maybe this marks a level of discretion that they're going to have to carry on going forward, where they're going to have to fly under the radar, considering that all across the United States, they're going to be known as the two brothers who tried to kill the president now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially if they end up actually making it public, which I'm not sure they will, but they but they very well might. Mm -hmm. my, my biggest reason for bringing that up is I, I feel like Supernatural or the CW in general would not cast actor with profile like Stephen Lobo has without keeping him for more than one episode. That just seems very unlikely to me. So I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, we're correct in that assessment that he could potentially become that kind of character. That being said, this week's episode ends with a huge cliffhanger, something that we haven't seen happen to the brothers in a long time. You know, they were arrested this week by the federal government, this time for an assassination attempt, so to speak, on the president's life. Sam and Dean are screwed. One of my favorite arcs from the early season of the series, spanning from seasons two to four, was the idea of the Winchester's running from the law. Back then, they were chased by FBI agent Hendricks, as I mentioned before. And similarly, when Dick Roman was in charge during season seven, he framed the brothers as serial killers, causing them to have to actually ditch the Impala and go even deeper undercover, forsaking their identities to a point. Now they've actually been taken. And from the preview of January's episode entitled First Blood, which will be the uh, return, mid-season return, aimed after one of my favorite action movies, by the way, it looks as if they're going to be locked away in an Area 51-like prison facility that supposedly doesn't exist, with Castiel and Mary Winchester having to come to their rescue. Tim, what did you think of this cliffhanger? I, for one, am stoked to 
see what Supernatural tries to pull off when we return in about a month? Will the brothers have to run from the law for the rest of the series? Because that could be really interesting. Well, well, let me just say this. We all season have been saying, you know, we think we know the writers pretty well. Well, after this episode, I'm not so sure we know the writers as well as we thought. I never expected for us to get a plot line where Lucifer became the president. I never expected there to be a plot line where we get Rosemary's baby. And I never expected there to be a plot line where the Winchesters get arrested by the Secret Service. So they threw a huge curveball at us this week. And I think their possibilities are endless. Needless to say, I really liked this cliffhanger. It's something that we necessarily haven't seen before. I mean, usually the mid-season is, and to a point it was this episode, was going up against the big bad for the season. So they did encounter Lucifer in this episode. However, there was also a lot else going on. I mean, we got stuff with Lucifer's child, we got stuff with the Men of Letters, we got stuff with Sam and Dean being arrested. So this was a very eventful episode. It wasn't just Sam and Dean going up against the big bad, and us not necessarily knowing how that winds up. And from the first Blood preview, I think we're in for a really interesting return to the mid-season with them being in prison. We've never really seen the brothers in prison before, and it'll be a great opportunity for them to use the characters of Castiel and Mary Winchester, who I've been saying ever since they introduced both of them and had them in their first scene together on the TV show, I thought that they worked well together. I thought both of their bit of naivete about the world and, you know, Castiel being an angel who doesn't necessarily understand everything and Mary Winchester having been gone for such a long time, I think they're a good partnership and I think it's going to be really fun for us as an audience to watch the two of them work together to try and find Sam and Dean in this black site. So it's definitely a very interesting mid-season and I love the fact that this is their direction they're going with it because it's something that is new for the show and it's something that neither of us could have predicted. And I know that we're both still hoping for our end of the season plot twist, but it'll be very interesting to see what direction they're going considering all the different plot lines they've been giving to us this season, which I highly doubt all of them will be wrapped up in this season. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you're definitely right, Tim, when you say that the writers have really thrown us a curveball this episode because I, I for one, could not have predicted that we were going to see the brothers thrown in jail again. I, for one, could not have predicted that Satan was going to become the president. You know, I couldn't even have predicted that we were going to ever see Nephilim again after they made a big deal of Cassiel killing the last one at the end of season eight. I, I didn't think any of that was going to ever return or happen, so to speak. And it did. And it kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench at our theories, which I still hope will come true to a point. But I'm also really excited for what they're going to do. I'm really excited that I don't know what is going to happen, that I don't really have a thought on what is going to happen. And with the Winchesters being put in prison, you know, we're going to see a prison break episode next. And that's going to be exciting. You know, we've only seen one episode on this whole show where they've actually been in jail and they were in jail willingly to fight a ghost, of course. But, you know, this time they're not in jail willingly. This time they don't have an escape route. This time they don't know somebody on the inside who is going to break them out at any moment. They are actually kind of screwed. And if their mom and if Castiel don't save them, they're going to be in there for a long time. Now, obviously, they probably will. I'm not worried about that. But what are the stakes going to be? What's it going to cost? Because it always costs something. And that's what I'm excited to see. Because mm-hmm. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think it, it's definitely worth saying. I mean, big props to the writers this week. Seriously. I mean, they've been making a, a lot of changes to this season. You know, I'm, I'm very impressed so far with this season. The last couple of seasons have been iffy at best. And this season's really throwing up the stakes. They're introducing a lot of new plot points. They're giving us some new characters to work with. And they're definitely throwing us curveballs we haven't been expecting. So in terms of a mid-season and, and in terms of what my expectations were going into this season, they've already raised the bar so much. And it's only episode eight. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. That being said, if you don't have anything else to say about this week's episode, Tim, I know I don't. I think we'll hand it back over to Nico and we'll let him finish off this week's episode of Across the Airwaves. So thank you guys for joining us. We'll be back with in January with the mid-season premiere First Blood. And until then, enjoy your Christmas break and we'll see you guys in the new year. Thanks guys for your supernatural review. I really wanted to hear what you guys had to say about that final cliffhanger and I'm glad you guys discussed it. Now we're going to move 
on to the closing. This week's episode essentially wrapped up the fall 2016 TV season. We will return in January with some reviews on Sherlock, and then when Supernatural returns in late January, we will return in full force and pick up the shows that we do in the spring as well when they premiere. So basically, be ready for Sherlock in January, and then you'll have to play it by ear as we move forward into the rest of the spring season. DC Nation is on hiatus as well, as is Marvelverse, which will be returning in the spring to pick up the rest of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But when all those shows come back, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter. We'll keep you informed as to when new episodes are going to be out. But for now, and the rest of the season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes store. Get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, get our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, on the mixed radio station, Code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio. Or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Get the Windows Marketplace. Get a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle. Got Google Plus. Or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. Got the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for the ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Murkay, James Hafel, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reistek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA covering Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, and Supernatural. See ya.
Jeffster lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.